Chris Webster here, co-founder of the APN. I just wanted to thank you for supporting archaeological education and outreach. Please share this post across your socials so more can learn about our shared past. On to the episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And I bet you just got as excited as I am when you heard that theme, because it means it's Spooktober again. My best work. Oh, so good. Um, This month, we are bringing you four more chilling tales from anthropology and archaeology. Are you ready for another Spookstravaganza? I am. But first... Let's read a review. A spooky review? No, a very nice one. We should have saved Hyracula for I know. Spooktober. Well, <laughs> this one is from Summer Time. Summertime, but with many M's and time. The herb. Anyway, <laughs> they say, this show is one of the podcasts I've listened to over the years. As an anthropology student, it's always wonderful to see this discipline represented in a way that lets the public know it's not boring and that archaeology (laughs) is not about dinosaurs. Thank you. I'm only two shows in and I'm so excited for the rest. If anthropology or archaeology has ever been of interest to you, I recommend listening to these folks. Thank you. That's so nice of you, summertime. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And I hope you've continued to enjoy us. I mean, you didn't go back and be like, removing all my stars. This is crap. (laughs) Now Uh, that I'm three shows in, that's (laughs) enough. (laughs) I think that's like my mom listening to it. (laughs) She got as far as three. That's great. I don't know. Oh, boy. So there will be plenty of time for getting the pants scared off of us and discovering the real stories behind horror tales. But for this week, let's get just a little creepy. Actually, I wrote that line before I did the rest of it. it <laughs> it's actually, actually a little like, more creepy than previously thought. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we're going to talk about a handful of stories of excavations where they found hands in unexpected places. Our first story brings us back to ancient Egypt, which feels only right since Amber keeps mentioning scary stories of her own whenever we talk about Egypt. But instead of horrifying honey or ear scarabs... Scare. Nope. Nope. Nothing there. This time, it's hands. Scarab. Scarabs. Yeah, I know. That's what I was trying for scarabs, but it just sounds like I'm saying scarabs in a weird. Scarabs. <laughs> um, not actually from the Midwest. A team of archaeologists excavating a palace in the ancient city of Avaris in Egypt, not spelled like greed, greed. Avarice. <laughs> no, maybe it's Avaris. unearthed the skeletons of 16 human hands buried in four pits. Two of the pits, located in front of what is believed to be a throne room, hold one hand each. Two other pits, constructed at a slightly later time in an outer space of the palace, contain the 14 remaining hands. They are all right hands. There are no lefts. Manfred Bietak, project and field director of the excavations, said, quote, Most of the hands are quite large, and some of them are very large. End quote. 
which means that he didn't give any sort of comparative measurements. So no, this is a dumb line in this article. <laughs> I'm just going to go out there and say it. And also I got to say, cause I like did some more research mm-hmm. on this cause I tried to find the paper itself. And so it was a paper, it was a conference paper. Uh, okay. So it's those things that happen where people make, like they give papers at conferences and there'll be somebody in the press who's like, I'm going to talk about it. And, and like, so it's sort of like press releases go out. Right. Like they, the actual always, paper isn't right. published. So like eventually it will be, or has been um, published in like the, the, in a peer reviewed like setting. Yeah. Like, like, or in like a monograph. Oh, the, yeah. Okay. But so like, because it's just part of the excavation. This was like a small part of the excavation. <laughs> and they're just like, huh. But Hands. Internet people. Guess what they did with that line? Oh, giants. I bet they yep. did giants. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so he didn't give any sort of comparative measurements, I think, although he's very. I think very, he was saying like like beefy man hands is kind of how yeah. I took it. Which is like, also how I understood it. But yeah. Um, I like to imagine, because he has a very German name, that he went on to compare it to like, oh, it's a series of five bratwursts. Um, I just, I like it's very reductive of you. I think it I might know. be Austrian. Mm. I'll work on that. The finds, made in the Nile Delta, northeast of Cairo, date back about 3,600 years to a time when the Hyksos, a people believed to be originally from northern Canaan, controlled part of Egypt, and made their capital at Avaris at a location known today as Tel el-Daba. At the time the hands were buried, the palace was being used by one of the Hyksos rulers, King Kayan. The hands appear to be the first physical evidence of a practice attested to in ancient Egyptian writing and art in which a soldier would present the cut-off right hand of an enemy in exchange for gold. Cutting off the right hand, specifically, not only would have made counting victims easier, it would have served the symbolic purpose of taking away an enemy's strength. Cutting off the right hand of an enemy was a practice undertaken by both the Hyksos and the Egyptians. One account is written on the tomb wall of Amos, son of Ibana, an Egyptian fighting in a campaign against the Hyksos. Written about 80 years later than the time the 16 hands were buried, the inscription reads in part, quote, Then I fought hand to hand. I brought away a hand. It was reported to the Royal Herald. End quote. For his efforts, the writer was given the Gold of Valor, which is a translation from James Henry Breasted, Ancient Records of Egypt, Volume 2, published in 1905. James Henry Breasted is the guy on the tympanum of the Oriental Institute receiving the light of the East. Mm. I think. I think it's him. I think well, he's definitely on it. I think he's the one getting the light of the, the light East. of the East. Yeah. Yeah, we've talked about that and how it uh, is not great. Later, in a campaign against the Nubians to the south, Amos took three hands and was given gold in double measure, the inscription suggests. No records of the practice of cutting off the right hands of your enemy have been found in the Hyksos likely homeland of northern Canaan, Betok said. It could have been an Egyptian tradition that the Hyksos picked up, or vice versa, or it could have originated from somewhere else entirely. Yeah, and so this was the first time that there was any ever any evidence of this. Yeah, it was so just... it had been written about, mm-hmm. and um, there are images in um, like in like bas reliefs and things of of soldiers like taking hands as trophies. But and as so they... we know, things that are on Egyptian inscriptions aren't always exactly related to real events. 
Yeah, and it and it could be like more of like a metaphor mm-hmm. or, or something their, more their like power away or or yeah or something sort of more like cosmological. But mm-hmm. in this case, this was the first evidence of turns out it's actually being a practice. Actual hands. Wow. Mm-hmm. So. We started off strong with a pit of hands, but let's escalate just a little bit further and talk about a pit of arms. An armpit? <laughs> how, wow. How did I miss that? I know. I was looking on the script for it, but come on. This is, this is why we're a great team. Armpit. Um, <laughs> so to do so, we got to travel back to the end of the fifth millennium BCE and what's today the border of France and Germany and Alsace, where they got the dogs. Alsace. Alsace. Yeah, um, the Alsatians. Oh, um, in what was locally the late Neolithic, a team of excavators working at Bergheim were studying a series of pits called silos in the landscape. Several of which, could, what? No, I what? was just wondering why a pit is called a silo. But it's just like it's just they like a silo grave or like a silo tomb. It's just oh, just the shape of it. Okay, yeah. Because in my head, silos are very much above ground structures. No, and not so like grain like, storage oh. silos. Just like silo shaped. Like I, that's, I'm there like, now. I'm yeah. with you. I have elsewhere. Up. Like pit graves or cysts, like things like Ick. that. You know, yeah, right. Um, so several of these contained human remains. That's not that's not weird. This was normal enough. But then in 2012, they made a grisly discovery, Mm. which was published in the journal Antiquity in 2015 with the following abstract. Quote, between circa 4500 and 3500 B.C., the deposition of human remains within circular pits was widespread throughout Central and Western Europe. Attempts at forming explanatory models for this practice have proven difficult due to the highly variable nature of these deposits. Recent excavations at Bergheim and Alsace have revealed a particularly unusual variant of this phenomenon featuring a number of amputated upper limbs. The evidence from this site challenges the simplicity of existing interpretations and demands a more critical focus on the archaeological evidence for acts of systematic violence during this period. Never mind that. Tell me the title of this article. So so this article is called (laughs) Hilariously, A Farewell to Arms, colon, (laughs) A Deposit of Human Limbs and Bodies at Bergheim, France, circa 4000 B.C., Amazing. Well, well done. done, indeed. But what was up with said particularly unusual variant on this phenomenon? So, Live Tell Science me. covered the study. They summarized it by saying, quote, One silo, called Pit 157, was utterly unlike the rest. The pit, about five feet, a meter and a half, in diameter, and 6.5 feet, about two meters deep, they must have been working in metric in the Neolithic here. <laughs> nice round of one and a half meters, two meters down. Yeah. Was filled almost completely with human bones. Wow. The oldest deposit, dating to about 5,335 years ago, contained at least seven severed upper limbs, including severed and dismembered hands, fingers, and arms. All things found on the upper limbs. You, yep. So far, checks out. (laughs) One of the seven limbs came from a child between 12 and 16 years old. All of the bones show cut or amputation marks made with either a knife or an axe. 
Soon after discarding the severed limbs in the pit, someone had tossed the bodies of seven other people into the pit. Those bodies included two adults and four children. This next line is a bit upsetting for some, including one tiny infant not more than a year old. The remains at the bottom of the pit belonged to a middle-aged man who had his arm cut off. (laughs) Does that mean that his arm was missing or it was... Yeah. Okay. His arm wasn't there, not just like the arm was there, but there were also marks on the bone that suggested it had been removed. We got we got a bunch of upper limbs. Right. We got a dude with only one upper limb. Right. And then we've got a, then some a bunch of people. people. Right. Okay. Of of different ages and, and sexes. So nothing good happening to also, them. Yeah. He had also sustained several blows, including a head wound that likely killed him, the researchers wrote. Long after the bottom layers of bones had settled over time, around 5,245 years ago. So specific. I know, right? Someone put the body of a woman into the pit. Unlike the badly disfigured bones below, this body showed no signs of violence or trauma. The pits differed dramatically from the surrounding pits, which contained bodies with little sign of violence, the researchers wrote. Um, And so, like, okay. The, one of the... um, Primary authors told Live Science in an email, quote, judicial sentence and war are the two main main hypotheses for explaining the amputations, end quote. While the team can't formally exclude the idea that Neolithic people were meeting out a were meeting out a brutal form of justice, comparisons to other similar finds and historical data suggest war is a likelier explanation, she added. Mm -hmm. So listeners, if your ears perked up at the mention of meeting out brutal forms of justice, then hang around until after this quick ad break when Anne is going to tell us about gross, horrible hand crimes of the past. But first, oh, cool. An ad. <laughs> Need to gain essential business skills to level up in your career? Then UCR University Extension's Professional Certificate in Heritage Business Management is the program for you. Join the first University of California online business program designed by and for cultural heritage professionals. Enroll early and save. Visit extension.ucr.edu slash APN today. We are back with more hand crimes. In this case, talking about the Hand of Glory, which I think you... Glory. (laughs) I got the hand, the hand, the hand, the hand. Okay, I'm done. The mummified, severed human hand in Whitby Museum was discovered in the early 20th century, hidden on the wall of a thatched cottage in Castleton by a stonemason and local historian, that's lucky, Joseph Ford. He immediately identified it from popular stories of such objects as a hand of glory. Oh, yes. Where's the Whitney, Whitby Museum? Uh, it's in Whitby. Great. Yeah, Thanks. Yeah, yeah. It, Thanks was gi- it, was, it was given to the Whitby Museum, which is in Whitby. In which is in the UK. Yeah. In <laughs> yeah. 1935. And is the only alleged hand known to survive. So uh, listeners may know Hand of Glory because it does come up in the Harry Potter books, but we'll talk more about what it <laughs> yeah, actually I was is. Just like, whoa, whoa. Yeah, no. Um, it also hand- comes up in the excellent Canadian series Lost Girl. Oh, does it? Yeah. I stopped at season three because I think this was in season I got- two. Oh, well, I missed that. I mean, it's easy. What a silly show. I liked it. 
A hand of glory was supposedly the carefully prepared and pickled right hand of a felon, cut off while the body still hung from the gallows, and used by burglars to send sleepers in a house into a coma from which they were unable to wake. Other stories say the sinister hand, left hand, or the one that did the deed, if from a murderer, was what you make the hand of glory out of. Yeah. In one version, the clenched hand is used as a candle holder for a candle incorporating human fat— fight club but in another consistent with the whitby hand the outstretched hand has its own fingers lit in this case should one of the fingers refuse to light it is a sign that someone in the household remains awake in either case the light cannot be extinguished by water or pinching <laughs> like uh, like pinching a flame out yeah. <laughs> just imagine like but only honk, honk. but only by blood or blue or skimmed milk the usual method entails Stories of the use of such hands became common across Europe from Finland to Italy and Western Ireland to Russia in the last 400 years. At least two were current in North Yorkshire, one relating to the Spittle Inn on Stainmore, maybe the (laughs) worst name for a... Oh my goodness, what were you thinking? Spittle Inn. On Stainmore. (laughs) This is but this is like what England's like, right? This it's is what it, England was like in 1797. But on the other hand, the other place is the Oak Tree Inn, which is perfectly pleasant. So, really, the PR team for the Spittle Inn really beefed it. Uh, <laughs> the second uh, supposedly existing Hand of Glory was in the Oak Tree Inn, supposedly in 1824. The following shorter but typical version of the story of a hand of glory comes from Northumberland. I'm not going to do an accent. Just my own. One dark night, when all was shut up, there came a tap at the door of a lone inn in the middle of a barren moor. The door was opened, and there stood without, shivering and shaking, a poor beggar, his rags soaked with rain and his hands gone white with cold. He asked piteously for a lodging, and it was cheerfully granted him. There was not a spare bed in the house, but he could lie on the mat before the kitchen fire and welcome. So this was settled, and everyone in the house went to bed except the cook, who from the back kitchen could see into the large room through a pane of glass let into the door. She watched the beggar and saw him, as soon as he was left alone, draw himself up from the floor seat himself at the table, extract from his pocket a brown, withered human hand, and set it upright in the candlestick. He then anointed the fingers, and applying a match to them, they began to flame. Filled with horror, the cook rushed up the back stairs and endeavored to arouse her master and the men of the house, but all was in vain. They slept a charmed sleep. So in despair, she hastened down again and placed herself at her post of observation." She saw the fingers of the hand flaming, but the thumb remained unlighted because one inmate of the house was awake. The beggar was busy collecting the valuables around him into a large sack, and having taken all he cared for in the large room, he entered another. On this, the woman ran in and, seizing the light, tried to extinguish the flames, but this was not so easy. She poured the dregs of a beer jug over them, but they blazed up the brighter. As a last resource, she caught up a jug of milk and dashed it over the four lambent flames, and they died out at once. Uttering a loud cry, she rushed to the door of the apartment the beggar had entered and locked it. The whole family was aroused, and the thief easily secured and hanged. So. Wow. Didn't turn out great for him, but spooky. Wow. 
Yikes. Spooktober is paying off already. Let's head on over to the Americas now and talk about an excavation that yielded something very early and very eerie. Mm -hmm. And per a 2015 article in PLOS One, um, we have a bit of an abstract here. In South America, the oldest decapitation is reported for the Andean region and dates to circa 3,000 years before present at the site of Asia One, Peru. Oh, that's confusing. Sure is. (laughs) Since all other South American archaeological cases occur in the Andes, examples given Nazca, Moche, Wari, Tijuanaco, it was assumed that decapitation was an Andean phenomenon in both its origins and its most unambiguous expression. In the, <laughs> You can't really decapitate someone ambiguously where it's like, well. Oh, can you? Oh, no. Please note the, the content notes going to come further down here Oop, where oopsies, I talk oopsies. about a bit of an ambiguous decapitation. In the present contribution, we review the available evidence on the de- on decapitation in South America and report the discovery in East Central Brazil of a case of de- human decapitation directly dated to between 9,127 and 9,438 years before present, um, excavated at the Lapo do Santo rock shelter in Lagoa Santa Central Brazil, this is the oldest case of decapitation found in the New World, leading to a reevaluation of the previous interpretations of this practice, particularly with regards to its origins in geographic dispersion. So from there, the authors go into some detail about the archaeological evidence for decapitation throughout South America, like the those items mentioned in the abstract. But I know what you're thinking. You're like, Amber, come on. This is an episode about hands, not heads. Are you typing scripts without your glasses on again? First of all, of course not. And that's super nude of you. Super nude? Yeah. It's a joke about my eyesight. Oh, I get it. Because you typed nude instead of rude. I get it now. Thank you. Woof. Man, it didn't land. It's just like, this is a great dumb joke. I didn't get it. It, No, now that I know what the joke was, I really like it. (laughs) It just took me a minute to get there. It's a visual joke, which the listeners of our podcast could appreciate, I'm sure. Okay. And second, guess what the excavators at Lapa do Santo found with this Neolithic decapitated head? I bet I know. Hands. (laughs) That's right. We got ourselves a skull hands situation. Skull hands. So to help you picture it, hold your left hand over the right side of your face, palm against your cheek and fingers up over your right eye. This is very uncomfortable. Okay. So like in the front of your face. Oh, well, I have glasses on, but. Yeah. Well, just. Okay. Yeah. You don't have to touch your face. Like we don't. Oh, okay. Yeah. So do that. Okay. Great. Uh So don't do this if you're driving. Pull over. Uh Stop doing it if you're driving. Now reach your right hand over the top of your head and hold your palm over your left eye, fingers pointing down towards your collarbone. Oh, weird. Now pretend pretend you're just bones. I'm just bones. You're just bones. And that's what's happening in this. (laughs) That's what's happening in this burial. So it's like a. So that's what's happening. It's someone doing like weird inverted peekaboo. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. Spookaboo. Um, Okay. Spookaboo. Peekaboo. <laughs> we'll get there. Yeah. We got all month. 
This is warm so up. The, <laughs> the burial was found 55 centimeters below the surface. Um, and subsequent research conducted on the bones doesn't so much give us an answer as to what was happening as it does suggest what wasn't happening. So quick content note, I'm about to share something that's pretty grisly. So feel free to smash that 30, 30 seconds ahead button. Um, but, but first, strontium analysis of the bones indicate that the young man, there was a young man and was local to the Lapa do Santo area, not an outsider. Okay. Forensic analysis, though, shows that the decapitation wasn't a clean one. And fractures in the neck vertebrae indicate that the head was only partly severed by a blade blow. The remaining muscle and tissue was then twisted and torn to remove it from the body. So that said, though, a blow that fractured the neck bones and partially severs the head probably would have killed that individual quickly. I but hope. Was that, but was that what killed them? That's the thing. Ah, I see. Um, so there are chop marks on the jaw, but no scrape marks have been found on the skull surface. So it wasn't defleshed. Mm-hmm. Um, nor are there any scratches or holes to suggest it was mounted as a trophy. Okay. Also, the the brain had been left in place, um, so it was less likely the, to be a display item. Right. So, so if this wasn't used as a trophy, but they definitely wanted that head off, what was going on? I don't know. I don't. Archaeologists, don't, the archaeologists in question, don't know either. Especially since the evidence of the case doesn't really make it seem like that it was necessarily like a punishment for violating some kind of social norms. Um, or a case of demeaning an enemy or collecting a trophy or even necessarily being treated as a sacred object because you would do something with those. You'd like think, you would, yeah. You would, you would process them in some way for their their mm-hmm. their intended use. But in right, this... longevity. It's just... It's just there. Skull hands. Like that. It's, just, it's just as news.com.au called, facepalm had a different meaning. No. In the Neolithic. No. <laughs> So, um, in the end, the study's authors say, quote, this ritualized burial attests to the early sophistication of mortuary rituals among hunter-gatherers in the Americas. In the apparent absence of wealth goods or elaborate architecture, Lagoa Santa's inhabitants seem to have been using the human body to reify and express their cosmological principles concerning death. But what those were. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Just to clarify, the skull in the hands, that was the only thing that was found in the burial? That, I, yeah. So, okay, it wasn't just the body hands. laid out like right. that. That's it was what, yeah, that's why I'm saying, like, I don't... Just skull like, and... I don't think we have a reason to think that this was a cause of death for someone. It's, it was just, like... This is how the skull, skull in the hands were like, found. Okay. Like, yeah. Like, and Interesting. You can, if you go to the... If you go to the link, the PLOS One article, um, you can... You'll see that, like, they have... They have images, and they also have drawings, and it's just, like... Which, you know, if you are not wanting to see images of human remains, don't go there. Don't go to that site. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but also there's like a really great illustration of it that um, it feels like a like a Ikea like instructions diagram where they have like the like skull Make sure hands. to do this with a second person. But they've got like the skull hands and then they've got like do 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 oh, do 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 55 centimeters and then like. Like and there were stone, so there were like stone, like little slabs, little stone slabs, like to mm-hmm. over it. Plaquettes. And so, so it was just like <laughs> how to build your own little skull hand shrine. I'm just like, oh, this is fun. <laughs> but yeah, 
right? Awesome. Okay, yeah. Anna, tell me Next. about something that I thought was funny, like when I saw it, because it's a very silly thing. It's a very silly image, but then when you learn why it's there and what it means, it's just, oh boy. Story of my life. Yeah. This is an account of an imitation hand, but the real scary story is Imperial Conquest. Wow. Who saw that coming? Everyone who listens to this podcast, that's who. (laughs) The first week. (laughs) So this hand, which was unearthed near Hadrian's Wall and made of 2.3 kilos of solid bronze, was almost certainly a gift to to a military deity for giving the Romans victory in the largest military combat operation ever carried out in Britain before or since. The operation, a relatively little-known Roman invasion of Scotland in 209 to 210 AD, was also probably one of the bloodiest events in British history. It involved a 50,000-strong Roman invasion force, elements of which penetrated as far north as Aberdeenshire. Aberdeenshire. Aberdeen. It's likely that thousands of tribespeople in what is now Scotland, mainly from the Caledonian and Miatai tribal confederations, yes? Matey. Matey? Matey? Matey. I think it's Matey. I'm having, like, big brain flashbacks. Okay. Matey? Like, right now. I think it's Matey. I will not make pirate joke. Uh, So a bunch of people from the Caledonian and Métis tribal confederations were killed. The Romans claimed that the native chieftains had reneged on a peace agreement and were therefore rebels, not just ordinary enemies. It's likely that the sacred bronze hand was ritually buried by one of the Roman commanders who had taken part in the conflict. Rome's indignation, feigned or real, over the natives reneging on the peace agreement was particularly acute because the 50,000-strong invasion had been led by none other than the reigning emperor himself, an ex-general called Septimius Severus. He was a, he was a beard bro. <laughs> Super beardy. It was popular then. This was the beardy period, yeah. Yeah, Hadrian and all that. His personal political credibility was therefore very much at stake. The war associated with the newly discovered bronze hand of God was therefore a particularly bitter one. The bronze hand, which had been deposited in a ritually significant boggy area of land adjacent to a Roman fort at Vindolanda on Hadrian's Wall in Northumberland shortly after the end of the conflict, what a sentence, was associated with a Roman god of Middle Eastern origin called Jupiter Dolicanus, originally a local Syrian version of the Roman king of the gods, Jupiter. Jupiter. This specific version of Jupiter was particularly beloved by the Roman military. His bronze hand was often mounted on the top of a pole and used to bless or sanctify his followers during religious rituals inside his temples. So you just take this just seems like bronze hand, hand on a like- stick. It Pinko. just seems like something you used to like put up someone's nose, like to bother That's bigger, them. It's you bigger t- than that. But you just like hand. reach across. And just <laughs> you just go boop. Yeah, you can. It's it's a safe, socially distanced way to slap someone across the face. It just seems like a a way boop. to prank people. Like poke. It's like putting Pulk. a hand on a stick is is asking for trouble. I agree. The cult must have been particularly important to the regiment based at Vindolanda or its commander because the temple was very unusually built inside the fort. So the temple to this version of Jupiter. It's the only example of such a phenomenon known from anywhere in the Roman Empire. The regiment based there was a Gaulish, French, originating unit of auxiliary infantry and cavalry known as the Fourth Cohort of Gauls. Fascinatingly and ironically, it is likely that the Roman invasion of Scotland, which was meant to solve military and political problems, and 
partially succeeded in doing so for several decades, destabilized and destroyed the Scottish geopolitical status quo and ultimately helped lead to the rise of the Picts, who in the end constituted a much greater threat to Roman Britain and ultimately helped destroy it. Although the invasion and its consequences occurred more than 1,500 years ago, they demonstrate how military actions that may appear logical at the time often end up having longer-term implications that the politicians, in this case a Roman emperor, had not envisaged or prepared for. When does that not happen, though? I mean, it doesn't help that, like, a lot of contemporary yeah, um, militaries, very... like, base themselves in, like... <laughs> By studying the classics. Yeah. And like the Roman Empire. You'd think they so would sort of figure out what doesn't work by doing that. But hmm. Dr. Andrew Burley, director of the Vindolanda Excavations, said, quote, The discovery of Jupiter Dolichinus's bronze hand, deposited as a Thanksgiving offering, demonstrates just how serious the conflict was and how relieved the Roman soldiers were that it had ended. It is further evidence illustrating how deeply religious they were and how seriously they took their relationship with their God. Um, we talked about the Vindolanda excavations recently on Old News because they found um, that little leather rat toy. So suggesting that either someone at that fort was playing pranks, which is very funny, um, or there were kids there who were using that as a toy. Um, and so if you want to go see the bronze hand of Jupiter Dolichinus, you can now do that uh, once it's safe to go out in the world again at the Vindolanda Museum. Yeah, but we'll have photos of it on mm -hmm. in the show notes because there's the one of like the dirt still on it where it's just like, like little hands poking out, little fingers poking out. And it's very it's like when in, in the zombie movie when you see the like coming up. From yeah, the grave. but it's like kind but of it's kind of funny. It, and like the way it's it's like it's quite realistic mm -hmm. but like in a cute way because it's sort of yeah, soft it's, like it's sort of like soft edges so it looks almost childlike baby hand yeah yeah and so it's and, but it reminds me of nothing so much as those tiny little hands that you can put on one finger the little plastic <laughs> hands and you can like take a tiktok of you stroking your cat with it and then there are disastrous consequences <laughs> those are the contexts i've seen <laughs> I went to a I went to some some capital A art once mm -hmm. um, and um, the As you like to do and like the performers were doing a they were doing like 60 second plays like that like at random and one of them so they were was, doing TikToks <laughs> this was a long time ago and also <laughs> like but they were they were doing these plays and one of them was um, to um, jewel these hands these hands, these hands are soft. No, it's there. And so yours. they, they did like they did like interpretive dance, and With then hands. they, no, 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 no. They were just doing interpretive dance, and then like they sort of like brought their hands. They, I think they didn't have their hands or something, and like whatever it was, but they brought their hands in, and they had the no. tiny hands on the ends of their like like on the ends of their sleeves, and they like very like earnestly like did oh boy the, like and so it was <laughs> so funny very funny <laughs> and also i was deeply uncomfortable at this weird art that i was right. seeing because it, like from nobody told me there was audience participation oh no and i think that's something you should obtain consent for yeah and so i was coming off of a really bad cold and so i just got like super drunk super fast and so like she had like one point, sip of wine no i no i was like may i have a glass of whiskey at the bar and they're like Yes. And I was like, more than that. More, I was like, just charge me for what it is. But I just like went in with my like ready to go flag, flagon of whiskey. Ready to and do I was, some art. And it was extremely funny because it was just the tiny <laughs> hands. It's funny. It's tiny And hands. so it's just like, 
dancing with the tiny hands. Any disproportionate hand situation. If they're too big, very funny. If they're too tiny, also very funny. I know. Can't go wrong. Well, (laughs) listeners, enjoy that mental image for a moment while we have a quick ad break. And then we'll be back um, with more hands. Hey, fans of archaeology, head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop and click the link to our Tee Public store. You'll find some awesome designs that you can pick up on t-shirts, mugs, and more. From our Ask an Archaeologist series to the worst idea the Life and Ruins podcast ever had, slamming agriculture. I mean, seriously. Again, that's www.arcpodnet.com forward slash shop for some archaeo swag. Chris Webster here to tell you about one of our affiliates, Timular. That's T-I-M-E-U-L-A-R. Whether you work from home or can go to the office or even to the field, Timular is an app, and if you want it, a physical device that helps you track your time down to the minute. Have a hard time separating your work-life balance? Set a weekly goal for tracked work hours and stop when you hit that goal. It's right in the app. So support the APN and finally start accurately tracking your time by heading to arcpodnet.com forward slash timeular. That's arcpodnet.com forward slash timeular to get on track today. Hey, archaeology fans, Chris Webster here. That last ad and this one were just heard by over 4,000 fans of archaeology and history. Do you have something you'd like to sell them? From job postings to products and services, podcast advertising works. Through our unique hosting service, we can play your ad for a short window of time so your customers aren't hearing something that's old two years from now. We can also make your advertising budget go further because we charge by the download, not by the episode. So if you want 10,000 people to hear your ad, that's what you're going to get. Our system allows us to target countries and zip codes so you get exactly the audience you desire. If you'd like to hear more, contact our advertising manager, Madison, at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. She's super cool and waiting for your call with a media kit and some sweet, sweet metrics. So that's Madison at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Remember, podcast advertising works because you're listening to this literally right now. And thanks for not skipping. Well, Anna actually misled you listeners, because this time we're going to talk about what happens when you find everything but the hands. Oh, yeah. So um, this story once again brings us to Europe. Sorry about that. I had trouble finding random hands in sub-Saharan Africa or like the entire continent of Asia and Oceania. So a lot of these are like stories from Europe. But this time we're in Portugal. Mm. And Christina Kilgrove wrote about this case for mental floss. I'll include the article in our show notes, but let me just read it in part because her words are better than my words. She writes, quote, In the small city of Estremoz, near Portugal's border with Spain, archaeologists recently excavated three graves located at the edge of a medieval cemetery. They were intrigued by the grave's isolated location and odd burial style. Within, they found something shocking. All three people had amputated hands and feet. Writing in the International Journal of Paleopathology, researchers from the universities of Evora and Coimbra. Coimbra? I don't know what to do with those vowels. Described the young to middle-aged men found in the graves with cut marks to their forearms and ankles. We're going to start talking about people being separated from their hands. Content warning. So skip ahead if if that's not for you. Well, 
But then I'm going to have another content warning for like actually awful. Like, okay. So, so this is sort I'm, of, I'm ramping it up. Oh boy. I'm just giving folks. Okay. I can tell you when you might want to just bail altogether. Okay. So I can't bail. <laughs> the cuts are clean through the bones, but not quite at right angles and appear to have happened just before or just after death. Oh, I hope it's just after for their sake. Even more interesting. The bones from the severed hands and feet were also found in the graves but not in the right places. Oh, no. In the case of a late teenage male, both of his feet and his left hand were buried under his left hip, while his right hand was under his left elbow. It sounds like they were just sort of tossed in and then ended up where they ended up. Yeah. So um, if you're at all squeamish, this is where you should bail. Yep. Just tap that ahead button until you hear me talking. Yeah. (laughs) Just... In another grave, they found evidence that one amputation took more than one try to complete. The man's right leg had a second set of cuts, likely inflicted after a failed first attempt to cut off his foot. The researchers think that a sharp implement such as a machete, sword, cleaver, hatchet, or axe was used to deliver the blow swiftly and with high force. Hmm. The archaeologists believe the cuts were made while the men were still alive or very near death and almost certainly restrained. Lead author Teresa Fernandez tells Mental Floss that, quote, due to the absence of any artifact, we cannot state for sure that the feet were bound. Yet considering the historical evidence, prisoners were normally bound with the legs straight while hung, end quote. So why had the, the, this is still Christina Kilgrove saying, why had the men been treated like this? Generally, amputations occur throughout history as the result of medical therapy, accident, ritual, intentional violence, or punishment. While there is evidence from the same cemetery for foot disease, these particular <laughs> men had... Sorry, it's not, it's not really that funny, but it's just, just very like, vague. Yeah, uh, these particular men had no other indications of problems with their bodies, meaning medical treatment can be ruled out. So too can ritualistic post-mortem amputation, since there are no historical or archaeological accounts of amputation of hands and feet after death, and their injuries were clearly not the result of an accident. The researchers think these amputations were a punishment. Historical records of amputations related to criminal cases are relatively rare, but medieval kings in the Iberian Peninsula had the discretion to mete out capital punishment, including hanging, drowning, and even boiling someone alive. Oh, boy! As they saw fit. They could also use mutilation as a punishment. The researchers found one mention specifically of the amputation of both hands and feet of traitors during a civil war in 14th century Portugal. Uh, Fernandez team writes, quote, those skeletons may represent the testimony of vigorous application of justice as an act of royal sovereignty in a peripheral but militarily strategic region, end quote. So Kilgrove vigorous application of justice is quite the phrase. um, Yeah. um, Vigorous application of justice to a a permanent end. Mm. Like, Mm -hmm can be compromised to a permanent end. Mm-hmm. Um, so Kilgrove goes on from there to explore contemporary contemporary to this grave. To the burial. Um, yeah. yeah uh, sources about crime and punishment in the Iberian Peninsula, as well as the archaeology of uh, judicial amputation. Uh, but at the end of the day, we really have no idea what these men did or were accused of doing that led to their burial in this, in this manner. And so... Um, We've got wow. one last. <laughs> I know. So we've got one last set of hands to talk about. And mm-hmm. this time, lucky for all of us, they're still attached to their owners. 
for the most part. Mostly. <laughs> yeah. This, I, I hope she listens to this because uh, the main researcher in this story is a friend of the show and a friend of me, Aww. Bria McCauley. Shout out. So from, <laughs> this is a very, very cool story, a very cool research, but this article in the National Post is a very dramatic. I got really excited, like the first three words of this, because I thought I found something in North America. And then I kept reading, I was like, oh, dang it, it's Europe again. Yeah, it's just Canadian archaeologists doing research in Europe. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but they call them Canadian archaeology researchers. And I was like, yeah. maybe they research Canadian archaeology. I know. And not Canadian archaeologists. Alas, no. Canadian archaeology researchers <laughs> in Europe have come up with a new theory to explain the perplexing abundance of Western European cave art that depicts dif disfigured human hands. People in some ancient societies ritually amputated their fingers to sacrifice them to a deity. What's that gesture for? <laughs> I mean, reasonable conclusion. I like how I, more. the idea for this episode was for me to be like, hands and you'd be like Wah! but like i'm doing it and like <laughs> <laughs> because you know why because we're talking about osteo stuff and i'm just like let's think about a reason for this and i'm just like ah! <laughs> <laughs> where'd that hand go where'd that hand come from ah! <sighs> well let's talk about these fingies huh Previous studies of the artwork, which dates from the Upper Paleolithic era, some 22,000 to 27,000 years ago, and can be found in France and Spain, have suggested that hundreds of images showing hands without their usual allotment of full-grown fingers were inspired so, by... <laughs> yeah, I know. Turn of phrase. <laughs> silly. Again, this is a very silly article about very cool research. We're inspired by people who lost digits to frostbite or who had a propensity to bend them backwards as a way of communicating. What? But. <laughs> what? I guess bend them backwards during or forwards, which would also be a way to obscure the finger during painting, but bending them away from the paint as a means of communicating in those images, not like communicating with hand gestures where the fingers are like meh. To bend them backwards as a way of communicating. Let's not spend so too like, much time on that because I don't think, yeah, don't push back see, too far. You get what I'm saying? I am not picking up what you, you get, are putting you down. You get what I'm saying? I, am, I do not I get what know. you're saying. I don't, I don't. You can bend your fingers talking, backward at me all you want. I don't If I was I talking to somebody that. in the in the upper Paleolithic, they'd be they'd like, know. I got you. <laughs> <laughs> me too. They'd bend some other finger back and be like, yeah. But <laughs> researchers, sorry, Bria. <laughs> <laughs> researchers at Simon Fraser University who considered a wealth of these images believe they probably portray the consequences of dark spiritual ceremonies. Come on, National Post. At which men, women, and children would lop off parts of their fingers to curry favor with a higher power. Come on, National Post. Writing in the Journal of Paleolithic I Archaeology. I am hungry, though. That's not great. Just... <laughs> It's just curry. I've been. Oh, I thought you were getting hungry for like lady fingers and Vienna no. sausages or something. Always hungry for fingies. Oh, cheeky fingies. Writing in the Journal of Paleolithic Archaeology, Bria McCauley, sorry, David Maxwell and Mark Collard also conceive of this act as a bonding exercise, which would have left individuals in those early societies with a shared mark of their devotion to each other. 
Macaulay said in an interview, quote, by cutting off a piece of your finger, everyone around you can see that you've done something to this severity that shows how committed you are to the god or to the group. It's just costly enough without being an infringement to your survival, end quote. Macaulay and her colleagues reached their conclusions by combing through an online ethnography database called the Human Relations Area Files, HRAF, HRAF, we've pulled from before, to find cultures around the world that have engaged in systematic finger amputation. They identified 121 societies through history that undertook this gory practice for one of 10 reasons, including mourning a relative, punishing wrongdoers, and staking out the group's distinct identity. Sacrifice was the most common motivation in the sample, and, in the researcher's view, the, po- the probable stimulus for the cave art. Macaulay said, quote, You're in a dark cave where images are said to appear suddenly out of the darkness. Individuals have argued that people might be using mind-altering substances. We thought that within the context of this ritualized environment, sacrifice would make the most sense out of all these different reasons to amputate a finger. End quote. The researchers think other evidence discounts possibilities that don't involve amputation. If the images pictured frostbitten hands, Macaulay said, they'd likely be found across a vast area wherever biting temperatures prevailed during the Paleolithic Age. Instead, they are distributed erratically within a handful of caves in different regions of France and Spain, and she doubts they represent an ancient sign language because they don't include a pattern of bent thumbs, which is the easiest finger to contort. Still, Macaulay said, further investigation into the cave art is warranted. She's hoping to advance her line of inquiry by studying how frequently fingers were amputated for medical reasons or menial accidents during this period, as well as by examining skeletal remains to see if their fingers were naturally misshapen. And she said, quote, previously, if a skeleton was missing their finger bones, we wouldn't really think too much of it because the archaeological record is so patchy and small finger bones can deteriorate quite easily and, you know, get lost. Uh, scavengers often will disrupt a, a body and often go for things like hands and feet. So it's tough to find hands and feet in the in the way back Paleolithic. Um, but to finish up with another quote from Bria, but now if we're finding a lot of skeletons that are missing fingers, it might mean something different. End quote. Ah, so did you know that you have yes. no muscles in your fingers? I did know that. You don't have any. With that, we're going to wrap up our first spooky episode. Let's give ourselves a hand. <laughs> I'm only clapping with one hand. So thank you for listening. And we'll be back in your ears next week with more Spooktober. And you can find that on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and anywhere else you like to listen. And um, Or even places you don't like to listen. You yeah, just hey. have, have your phone on you. Listen yep. to them there. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't. And you might hear it at the top of the show. And you can also find us, if you'd like to, on social media. On Facebook, we are at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. And head over to thedirtpod.com for show notes of everything that we've talked about today. Um, things you do want to look at, things you don't want to look at. Um, and all of that and more. There's more there. Mm-hmm. Like merch and merch. a button that you can click on to sponsor an episode of your own yeah topic of choice another button you could click on to go to patreon and support us there and get more content even more every month wow thanks everybody for listening we love you goodbye happy spooktober
This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Chris Webster here. Thanks for listening and sharing this episode across your socials. It really helps us get the word out. If you don't know how to share from your podcast app, just look for a share icon on Apple devices. It's usually a box with a little arrow coming out of it, something like that, and share it across your socials right from in the app. If you'd like to support us a little more and get some extras in the process, then head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for some options. That's arcpodnet.com slash members to support archaeological education and outreach.